nobody talks about Pharaoh's pants very often, but they're there. It was her most cherished jewel. I just get sort of um, rather excited by the fact that I'm on the very spot. It's the only one of Fabergé's eggs that looks like an egg. I love this fact they sort of stop for lunch halfway through the rebellion. He actually reaches down into the guy's throat and gets the diamond back. Welcome to History Gems, where the topic of today's episode is pirates. Joining me today is Dr Ian Friel, a maritime historian with over 40 years experience. Ian is the author of five books on the subject, so who better to talk all things pirates? Fifteen men on the dead man's chest, yo-ho-ho and a bottle of rum. Drink and the devil have done for the rest, yo-ho-ho and a bottle of rum. He worked in museums for many years, including the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich and the Mary Rose Trust, and has long had an involvement with maritime archaeology. Since 2007, he's been a freelance writer, historian and museum consultant, also working as a house historian and creative writer. Welcome to History Gems, Ian. It's a massive pleasure to have you with me today and to talk about a very intriguing topic, which the title of which was suggested by yourself, so Pirates and the T-Word. Thank you very much for having me on, Nicola. It's, uh, um, it's my first actual podcast I've done as opposed to an interview, so it's a new thing for me. I hope it comes across all right. Pirates and the T word. Uh, the T word is treasure. Uh, and one reason I put it that way is because whenever people start talking about pirates, the word treasure usually isn't very far behind. Um, and this isn't very surprising because uh, the most famous uh, pirate story still, probably nowadays, is um, Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island, which first came out as a novel in 1883. Um, there have been at least six film adaptations of the book, which of course spread its fame. Uh, but the most influential one, I think, in terms of what people think pirates were actually like, um, was probably the 1950 Disney version, which had the uh, um, the great British actor Robert Newton um, hamming it up as Long John Silver. Um, <laughs> apparently, the director of the film told Newton to let it rip, as he put it, as regards <laughs> his performance. And one consequence of this was the phrase, Arr, Jim Lad, uh, nowhere it was in the book. Um, and the people's ideas of pirates probably changed a bit with the um, Pirates of the Caribbean film, films where Johnny Depp was apparently channeling uh, Keith Richards from the Rolling Stone instead of Robert Newton, but it, it's in a similar uh-huh. vein. Um, and fictional piracy remains incredibly popular. I mean, the uh, sea shanties have recently gone viral. Um, there's actually, um, uh, you may know this, perhaps even celebrate it, there's an international talk like a pirate day which is on the 19th of September every year. It was I didn't know that. Two okay. Americans, uh, John Bauer and Mark Summers in 1995, and perhaps uh, inevitably its patron saint is um, Robert Newton. Um, Arr, Jim Ladd, actually derives from <laughs> Newton's performance, and he adopted this peculiar sort of half-Irish, half-West country, at least to my ears, accent. Um, and through all these caricatures of pirates, uh, from Treasure Island onwards, and indeed before, runs the theme of silver, gold, and of course jewels. Very yes. pertinent to your your own work. One of the ways in which I got into pirate history was, was partly from years back working on medieval and Tudor history. But um, I, I recently published a couple of books, um, Britain and the Ocean Road, last year, 
uh, and uh, Breaking Seas, Broken Ships, which is which came out a few weeks ago, um, which used the stories of a small number of shipwrecks to chart the um, uh, Britain's maritime history from the Middle Ages to the 21st century. Mm. And uh, one of these stories uh, was a pirate story from the so-called Golden Age of Piracy, which I think has a lot to say about how real pirates functioned and what they were like, uh, in yeah. some ways similar to the fiction, in some ways not at all. Mm. Um, but I, th- I think before we we talk about um, about the reality, it's, it's probably an idea to to start with um, fiction and, and maybe talk a bit about um, Robert Louis Stevenson and Treasure Island, which I re- yes. re- reread and was riveted by. I must say. <laughs> Yeah, do you know, I've, I, to my shame, I've never read it, but I do have a copy and I am going to go away and read it, perhaps in the sunshine after we've had our chat. Yeah, it's a great story. Um, I mean, yeah. Tre- Treasure Island was, uh, as I say, uh, everyone knows, it's the work of Robert Louis Stevenson. Yes. Um, he, he has an enormous output as a writer. Didn't live very long. He was born in 1850 and died in 1894. Um, and it achieved immediate and huge success. I, mean, I can't really underrate this. It was a, a real milestone in uh, um, in, in storytelling. And, mm-hmm. and for those who um, haven't read it, I mean, it's too long to um, adequately summarise here, but the story <laughs> is told mostly in the form of a memoir by uh, young Jim Hawkins. It's set in the, uh, the mid-18th century. Uh, Jim's the son of a Devon innkeeper, and the events kick off when... Um, a dangerous and violent old seafarer called Captain Billy Bones arrives at the inn. And there's a chain of events in which Bones expresses his, his real terror. I mean, he, he's a terrifying man in his own right, but he's really, really afraid of a one-legged man. Shortly after, he's, he's attacked by some of his former associates um, who want a map that he has, which shows the location of um, the pirate Captain Flint's treasure, which is buried somewhere on a remote tropical island. Um, Bones ends up dying of sheer fright, um, and Jim acquires the map, which he takes to two local local notables, Squire Trelawney and Dr. Livesey. Um, Trelawney is a sort of bluff-hearty character, and as it turns out, quite gullible. Um, He goes to Bristol, hires a ship, the Hispaniola, hires a crew, and takes Livesey and Jim and some others on, on... an expedition to find the treasure. But unfortunately, in the course of recruiting the crew, he comes across an apparently honest one-legged sailor who becomes the ship's cook, who is called Long John Silver. Um, Unknown to Trelawney and the others, um, Silver had actually served as Captain Flint's quartermaster, and he persuades Trelawney to hire a significant number of uh, Flint's former crew as the crew of the Hispaniola um, to cut a longish story, well, it's quite a short book, it's fairly short. They get to the island, the pirates reveal themselves, fighting breaks out. Jim and the others go through a variety of adventures and dangers until the pirates are defeated. Uh, they get a sizable amount of the treasure and the ship goes back to England. Um, it, it, it is a great adventure story. It, it, it's yeah. one that's survived because of a good plot and Stevenson's writing. Mm. Um, but also because it shows considerable psychological depth. Jim goes from being a child to a, a young adult in the space of months. Um, but the real, the really remarkable character is Long John Silver, who is a very clever man. He can be a brilliant, charming and kind, but he's also revealed as 
uh, an absolutely stone cold cold killer at times who is quite prepared to um, betray his own men if it suits him. I mean, he's really some sort of psychopath, although I don't think the term has been coined then. Um, And Stevenson, in writing the book, didn't really invent anything new about pirates, uh, but some of the details he he used have become pirate archetypes in fiction. Um, I mean, one of the most famous bits is the the song that Billy Bones sings, which turns out to have been a favourite of the pirates. It's a sea shanty, and it goes... Uh, I'm sure lots of people recognise it, even if they don't know where it came from. Fifteen men on the dead man's chest. Yo-ho-ho and a bottle of rum. Drink and the devil have done for the rest. Yo-ho-ho and a bottle of rum. Uh, It's actually a shanty because it's uh, it's a work song for sailors because it's Ah. later in the book uh, when they're raising the anchor on on board the Hispaniola. Um, A shanty times the work and also eases the monotony of it. and They're pushing the capstan to raise the anchor cable. And uh, on the third hoe, they push the capstan bar. So it, 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 it you know, it has. It ha- it's not just a, a, a random pirate song. It, it has a real use. Oh, I um, didn't realise that. That's interesting. It's yeah. It's in terms of how people think about pirates, it, you can't underrate the influence of of Treasure Island. No, um, but it, as I say, it's not just a simple story. Um, treasure and the greed and sickness it can breed in people um, are. Uh, uh, is, a, is a major theme in the book. Um, Captain Flint is said to have uh, taken six men ashore with him to bury his loot, which was valued at £700,000, 18th century oh. prices. Um, but when he came back a week later, uh, there was only him. He'd killed the others to make sure they couldn't reveal where the, the, the gold were, uh, the, the gold and silver and jewels were. That oh. um, uh, the only clue is this treasure map, which Captain Bones had. Um, it has its uh, directions. It has three red X's and the words bulk of treasure here. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, of course, the phrase X marks the spot has become proverbial nowadays. Yes. Dates back to that sort of thing. I see. Um, part of the treasure, uh, a cache of silver bars, is never found. But one thing they do find is a vast number of coins. Uh, and the, uh, the most detailed description of them comes from Jim, who has the job of packing them into bread bags for the jo- journey home. And he says this about it. It was a strange collection. English, French, Spanish, Portuguese, Georges and Louises, doubloons and double guineas and moidores and sequins. The pictures of all the kings of Europe for the last hundred years. Strange oriental pieces. Nearly every variety of money in the world must, I think, have found a place in that collection. But even though he's excited by all this um, loot, um, he's not. He, he leaves the, the the reader in no uncertainty as to how it was acquired, and he goes on to say, "How many it had cost in amassing! What blood and sorrow! What good ships scuttled on the deep! What brave men walking the plank blindfold! What shot of cannon! What shame and lies and cruelty! Perhaps no man alive could tell." And though Stevenson's work helped pirates on the way to becoming figures of fun, the Treasure Island yeah. pirates, are, pirates are not. Um, they're not admirable in any way. They get drunk. They're often stupid, very wasteful. They chuck food on the fire rather than eat it. Uh, oh. Quarrelsome. And violence is always in the background. So we've got this image of the 
pirate as a harmless jolly cr- clown. Um, yeah, this guy is not. I mean, he wouldn't be no. out of place in a Quentin Tarantino film. You know? Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> quite. <laughs> but, uh, we've got this myth that uh, pirates were harmless and jolly and you know yeah. nice cozy and safe and uh, we're, we're quite happy to let our children dress up as pirates you know we, we wouldn't let them uh true you know dress up as uh, as other sorts of criminals uh, i think normally no that's a really good point that's a really good point um i mean so does, does so the book treasure island it it obviously it does have a, a huge impact on mm. on popular perceptions of pirates um, which is quite interesting. And, yeah, like you said, I'd, I'd never thought of it in that way before, but you're right, we we do let children dress up as as pirates. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, yeah, and, and you're right, you wouldn't you wouldn't allow a child to dress up as Jack the Ripper, would you? So, no, um, not. No. Not <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> but, Let's talk a bit about that, about pirates throughout history or over mm. history and um where does or where do we think do we know where piracy begins and and how it begins oh, well quite um to be honest no one does no. <laughs> uh, probably in prehistory because we know there was piracy in the time of ancient greece and rome and some of the things that described for example in the uh, uh, homer's odyssey about the voyages of odysseus are, are really piracy that one oh. of the first things Odysseus and his crews do when they leave um, Troy is a, 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 a raid, a settlement that's you know completely well not doing any damage to them. They just raid it to get loot and, and what have you. But we know that uh, piracy was commonplace. For example, in medieval England, there are a lot of cases where people complain about being attacked by by pirates. But uh, it, it does seem that a lot of otherwise legitimate traders would um, turn to piratical acts with, without too much encouragement I mean, uh, and in some places the the the, the top pirates were the top local people and there's this um extraordinary example for dartmouth in devon in the late 14th and early 15th centuries there were two john hawleys father and son um they served as local members of parliament mayors they owned ships they traded but they were also prolific and highly successful pirates so if you go to one of the churches in dartmouth you'll see a um uh, a brass of the uh, older uh, Hawley in the in in the church floor. I mean, he's dressed mm. up as a knight. He looks totally respectable, but you know, he was, a lot of his money must have come from stealing other people's stuff. Uh, but uh, 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 broadly, um, wow. and, and, and tackling piracy was always a problem, really, until you started having efficient state navies and the more efficient um, sort of law enforcement machinery. Um, mm. And in the Middle Ages, in the sixteenth century, um, governments, well, the English governments, uh, often lacked the will to tackle it because, in times of war, the, the best seafighters um, were often the worst pirates, and you find cases of pirate uh, people being um, arrested for piracy who were let off because they're they needed to fight in a war. So, really, <laughs> you know, it, it was a double bind and something you couldn't really get over. Um, there was also a further complication of what was known as the right of reprisal. Um, there was a common understanding back in the Middle Ages that if your goods were taken at sea by ships uh, from another country or people from another country and you failed to get compensation in that country's courts, you could go to your own government to apply uh, to get permission to attack the shipping of that com- uh, the, the pirate's country 
until you recoup your losses. And of course, in medieval conditions, that was sort of carte blanche to do pretty much what you liked in many right. instances. Um, and in wartime, governments found it useful to license uh, people to attack enemy shipping, uh, what was later called privateering. And, and of course, this is another thing that's a driver of piracy. It, it, um, uh, it, it um, meant that the, the line between the licensed privateer and the, the pirate was potentially very thin. Uh, and, and in later Elizabethan England, you have these things called letters of appraisal, which allowed you to attack enemy ships, in this case, Spanish ships. Mm. It seems to have been, it seems to have developed even a market in these actual letters that people were selling them on, you know, like false really? one sort or another. Really? Uh, and, and false, uh, you, you get uh, falsified um, uh, privateering licenses as well. Um, and, mm. and one of the odd things um, regarding piracy in England, at least, was that it wasn't actually made a felony, a, a major crime, until 1535. And even then, you still had to apprehend the pirate uh, before you could uh, try them and whip ah. them and string them up. Um, well, actually, I just was going to ask. So, what was the what was the punishment if if people if men were caught um, and found guilty of piracy? What what could they expect to happen to them? Well, some some did end up being killed, but it, it was um, sometimes it was a matter of um, compensation. I mean, that there was a and in the 12, well, actually, the second half of the 13th century, there was a long-running, low-level maritime civil war between the port of Great Yarmouth in, in Norfolk, which was one of England's greatest ports at the time, and the sink ports in, in Kent and Sussex, uh, because the sink ports had control over the, um, the, the annual herring fair, which was an incredibly lucrative event uh, where mm. the herring catches were sold. And um, there was constant... Well, fairly, certainly, maybe not constant, but um, repeated examples of violence between the two. And it culminated in 1297 when uh, contingents of ships from Great Yarmouth and the Sink Ports um, went on a royal expedition with Edward I to Flanders. And okay. uh, there were two naval battles on this expedition, and both of them were fought between the Great Yarmouth and the Sink Ports ships. Uh, a lot of Yarmouth men were killed. Um, over 20 of their ships were d destroyed. And um, we know a lot about this because the great Yarmouth people submitted detailed um, accounts of what they'd lost uh, and naming some of the Sinkport's pirates. But the Sinkport pirates didn't really suffer in the end. You know, the Crown, need, they were too important in terms of... Um, as it was seen, the the, the country's naval defence, so the, 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 they didn't lose out. Some some medieval pirates certainly were executed, but um, mm. well, there was probably a better chance of getting away with it than uh, would have been the case, say, in the early 18th century. Gosh, that's well, interesting. So what, what does happen in the early 18th century? What changes then? Well, piracy uh, was transformed in the case of the 17th century. Well, from the late 16th century onwards, one of the big things that, changed was the the nature of the loot available uh, I mean, capturing a ship and its cargo um, could be it could be really valuable I mean, ships contained often immense wealth but it was mm. uh, often of a quite prosaic kind you know cargoes of fish wool cloth wine that that, that sort of thing okay. uh, you, you occasionally get in the middle ages references to um uh, gold and jewels being taken, and, and ships ah. carried 
gold and silver money, of course, for trading yeah. or trading profits. Uh, there's a rather uh, there's one quite spectacular example of a, a seaborne jewel heist in uh, I suppose you could call it in 1310 when a, a pirate from what's now the southern Netherlands called John Crabbe attacked a ship carrying the goods of a, a, a widowed aristocrat called Alice Countess of Marshall. The, the ship was en route from England to uh, to Flanders and um, uh, they took her gold, silver, jewels and clothes which were valued at £2,000 uh, in wow. certain prices. It's about £1.3 million now. Minimum. <gasps> so it was wow, that's <laughs> like a, a, a huge bank job uh, in later wow. centuries. Um, but th- this sort of thing, uh, what changed in the 16th century was the maybe not so much the availability of loot, although there was a lot more valuable loot around, but mm. the perception that you could make yourself really, really rich by um, capturing the right ship. Because what changed in the 16th century, of course, was that uh, uh, Spain and Portugal started acquiring, conquering possessions in Central America and South America. Um, yes. And they used a lot of slave labour imported from Africa, but also indigenous slave labour, to work the gold and silver mines that they found. And uh, this loot was transported regularly back to Spain. Um, uh, Spain it helped transform Spain into the world's first maritime superpower. Um, mm. and, and, and even Elizabethan England was a minnow compared to Spain, but uh, uh, it, it did mean that there were a lot more um, uh, high-value loot sailing the seas. What, it wasn't always the case, but it, it meant that uh, pirates started looking outside local waters. Um, you, you have um, uh, the English, the French, the Dutch voyaging to the Caribbean and to South America to, and, and Africa to capture some of these these high-value cargoes, which wasn't all gold, jewels and silver. Um, mm. a, a cargo of um, pepper and spices from Asia, for example, was valuable. There was oh, a cargo yeah. of um, African elephant ivory. Um, and really? also, as we said, uh, slaves. Uh, I mean, the, mm. uh, the Spanish and Portuguese dominated the slave trade in the 16th century, uh, mm. although people like Francis Drake tried to break into it. They didn't uh, really succeed because of the strength of Spanish opposition. But from the mid 17th century, uh, uh, England and later Britain really got into the uh, slave trading in in a huge way. And uh, Britain eventually became the world's biggest um, slave trader on the the transatlantic run. Um, So it it was a great change. I mean, slaves became, uh, it's horrible to say it, but they became part of this, the value and the currency. There's a pirate Mm. story I'll be telling later which illustrates this. so mm. by the early 18th century, to finally answer your question, <laughs> no, no. Uh, the, uh, uh, there was a sudden upsurge of piracy, probably in the wake of the, um, the end of the War of Spanish Succession in 1713, 1714, okay. uh, when a lot of privateers suddenly had no more privateering to do and a lot of sailors were reduced, re- released from state navies. Uh, and there was a sudden upsurge when you had between it's estimated between maybe 1,500 to 2,500 pirates operating in the Caribbean uh, and the Atlantic um, with maybe 20 to 30 ships and taking okay. literally hundreds of vessels. Um, that's the, um, if you like, the, the, it, it became the last gasp of major European piracy because 
state navies, particularly the Royal Navy, crushed it very effectively. Um, at least 400 pirates went to the gallows, um, possibly as many as 600. Um, and uh, there was still European piracy thereafter, but it was never on the same scale. And this okay. comes at the, the end of what's known as, uh, in some sources, as the, the golden age of piracy. I mean, it's an mm. odd phrase. You, would, you wouldn't talk mm. about the, the golden age of uh, a, a burglary or the golden age no. of just bodily harm. But, no. <laughs> but that's Quite. what's going on. Um, but it, it started in the mid-17th century, first in the Caribbean, and then the pirates expanded their activities to uh, across the Atlantic, to Asia, the Pacific, and so on. Um, uh, but the okay. early 18th century was really the, the end of it. Um, and one, one of the interesting things is that uh, around about this time, 1724 in Britain, you get the publication of the first really successful um, true crime book about piracy, I suppose you could say. Oh. Uh, it was written by a man who called himself Char Captain Charles Johnson, although no one's sure exactly who he was. Um, no. But the book was called A General History of the Robberies and Murders of the Most Notorious Pirates. So this is where mm. a lot of stories about people like Blackbeard and um, Anne Bonny and so on uh, come from. Um, okay. And provided a lot of fodder for later writers, in, including Stevenson. Um, but just uh, wanted to illustrate, really, the, the, the origins of this, um, uh, this sort of mental gold rush that occurred that helped to spur what we think of as the, yes. the golden age of piracy. Yes, um, please do. With, with, with a story uh, of um, relating to Francis Drake, uh, the great Elizabethan yes. navigator. Uh, between yeah. 1577 and 1580, he became the first navigator to circum... Uh, sorry, the second nav navigator. Magellan was the first, of course, um, to na uh, circumnavigate the globe. Yes. Uh, a long, long voyage. Um, it was... Um, done in conditions of great secrecy even now we don't know uh, the full extent of his uh, uh, his instructions but um, oh, really? uh, it, it beggars belief that no one in England um, would think that Drake would not go uh, go into the Pacific without actually coming back with a great deal of loot because he has a history mm. of plunder and uh, combat with the Spanish uh, he had a rooted aversion to Catholicism and the sponsors of the voyage included um, courtiers. There was the Queen's fa uh, Queen Elizabeth's favourite, the Earl of Leicester, uh, her Secretary of State, Sir Francis Walsingham, and uh, and, uh, and others. Um, and uh, with the Queen in, in in the background, I'm sure she must have been aware of what was going on. Yeah. But Drake sails off in November 1577, um, and while they're en route in the Pacific. Um, he comes across a, a large Spanish ship that was called, uh, uh, excuse my Spanish pronunciation, Nuestra Señora de la Concepción. Um, but the ship was nicknamed Cacafuego, which translates as shitfire. Oh! <laughs> um, because Drake wow. was shipped quite easily after a brief fight and treated his captives well. Uh, it took six days to unload the Cacafuego's cargo of treasure Wow. Uh, and Drake eventually let the Spanish ship go, giving presents to his crew. Now, this wasn't normal pirate behaviour, being nice. Okay. Every pirate massacred the people they captured, but um, uh, yeah. Drake knew, uh, I'm sure, that this one capture would bring him real fame and fortune. Uh, the loot included 13 chests of 
silver reales, uh, pieces of eight, wow. 25 tonnes of silver bars, oh. 80 pounds weight in gold, plus what was described as fruits, conserves, sugars, and a great quantity of jewels and precious stones. <gasps> Drake came back with uh, many fewer men and uh, the one ship uh, out of his five. In uh, 1580, um, he received a knighthood from the Queen, the Queen who seems to have made at least a £300,000 profit from the voyage, and that again, 16th wow. century prices. Yeah. Uh, Drake kept 10000 invested in a country estate, Buckland Abbey, his crew shared another 10000 and the other investors did pretty well as well. Um, the Golden Hind uh, was actually the first ship in uh, British history ever to be put on public display as an historical artefact, because it was put in a dock at Deptford and oh. stayed there until the 17th century when it rotted away. Uh, people have tried to find the remains but without success, but uh, there's a few bits of it, I think, in the Ashmolean recarved as chairs but um oh, it, it, right. it, it was the voyage was regarded as that that important and that famous and yeah i'm sure the money helped a lot yeah um, you can still see the um the, obviously the recreation of the golden hind oh, in, in london yes indeed yes yeah, 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 um, the, yeah. The, the, there's been more than one reconstruction of the golden hind the, the, oh, right. one in, uh, uh, in brixham as well Oh, okay. Um, so uh, it, it, it's a uh, it's a ship that's uh, that's sailed through the ages, if you like. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, very few piratical voyages, and, and this was piracy. That England okay. and Spain were not at war at this point, uh, and the Spanish regarded this as piracy. They had an agreement uh, treaty with the Portuguese, which basically banned all other powers from sailing beyond an imaginary line in the Atlantic, um, ah. and so anyone. Uh, crossing that line, in, at least in theory, well, and to the Spanish, uh, was committing acts of war. There's this phrase, no peace beyond the line. And that, that was, you know, uh, it, it was yeah. an imaginary line, but it had, had a real effect. I see. Um, but one of the interesting things, there's a footnote to this, um, as Drake le left the Cacafuego in the Pacific, apparently one of the Spanish ship's boys remarked, remarked that the ship would no longer be called Cacafuego, shit fire, it would become caca plata, shit silver. <laughs> Over the next 150 years, you get many more European sailors who try to tap in, usually without success, into this precious and polluted flow of gold from the, 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 these slave mines in the, um, in the Americas. Um, yeah. Very few did as well as Drake. Gosh. No, and, and obviously we remember him today, so oh. he did incredibly well. Is, is what people call a complicated figure, I think. He did some things <laughs> yes. that would be anathema nowadays and others that yeah. you know, um, uh, would perhaps not, not be so upset about. Let's talk a bit about the, the reality mm -hmm. of piracy. So, yeah, so talk to us a bit about um, how much of this, you know, how much of this can we take with a pinch of salt and how much... You know uh, how much of it is is true. Well, I was researching my book, Britain on the Ocean Road. I was looking for a, a story about the pirate ship because the the, the, the book and its successor are, are based around different. Th each chapter is based around a different theme. I wanted one to do with piracy, and I found the story of a pirate cruise across the Atlantic in the years sixteen eighty three to eighty four. The evidence for this comes from the testimonies of seven of the pirates 
who were interrogated on both sides of the Atlantic after they'd been captured. Um, the ages ranged from about 15 to 36. That's in, in wow. year 1684. The testimonies show an unglamorous and in some cases rather appalling side of piracy. But they also do pick up on some of the themes that remain very strong in, in pirate storytelling nowadays. Um, the big question mark that faced me when I was using this stuff is how can you believe it? Mm. Um, because piracy was a capital crime and the men could be hung. There was a real incentive to lie. Um, three of the testimonies were, were pretty thin, uh, more or less along the lines of, um, oh, I was too ill on the voyage to know what was going on, gov, type of thing. Um, but four of the pirates gave very detailed evidence that effectively seemed to incriminate them, uh, putting their necks on the line. I mean, why they did this, um, possibly there was some torture, we don't know, but um, possibly they, they hoped that honesty might lead to mercy. And, and these four accounts pretty much corroborate each other. Uh, so I think what they, can, they said can be believed. The story does show that some of the cliches of pirate fiction and film, that's plunder, pieces of eight, marooning, duels, and even pirates, uh, a pirate who only had one leg, mm. <laughs> uh, were founded in fact. Um, the everyday language of pirates apparently included a lot of swearing and blasphemy, which is mentioned in Treasure Island, although yeah. referred to. And none of this is reproduced in the testimonies, where you wouldn't expect it. I don't know how many people swear when they're in court? But um, and of course, the testimonies are filtered through the minds of lawyers and court officials who, who wrote them down. But that aside, this is about as close as we can get to how these pirates actually spoke. Um, the story of these pirates uh, began on the island of Jamaica in the early months of 1683. One of the odd things about this voyage, um, in the course of some 20 months, the pirates went through three ships and four captains. Um, cool. And um, each ship they acquired, uh, it, well, new to them, um, was named Resolution. The first pirate ship was Resolution, and they carried the name on right through, which is, is strange. Um, but anyway, in the early months of 1683, a small 26-ton vessel called the Resolution turned up at a place called Point Negril in Jamaica. The ship's captain was named Jeremy Ravel. Uh, he said that he was planning a voyage of purchase against the Spanish and invited people to join him. Uh, purchase in this instance meant plunder. Uh, Britain and Spain were at peace at this point, so there was no legal justification for it and Jeremy Ravel was very clearly a pirate. The voyage went on until August 1684 um, and involved a lot of activity. In the course of that voyage, the pirates sailed some, something over 20,000 miles. Wow. Um, but uh, to get back to Jamaica, uh, once the ship had left Jamaica, uh, a row broke out on board. Ravel wanted to go to Mexico, but most of the crew in this case, led by the ship's doctor, who was a man called John Graham, wanted to sail for West Africa, where there were all sorts of riches. Uh, Ravel lost out, and rather like Ben Gunn in Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island, he was marooned on a, on a desert island um, in the Bay of Huron uh, Honduras. Um, three other men went with him. Um, they weren't less, left to starve, though. They were given a canoe, weapons, and a net so they could get some food, so it wasn't uh, quite as brutal as it sounds. Uh, but now John Graham became the, the second captain of the Resolution, possibly one of the 
few people in history to make the transition from medic to pirate chief. <laughs> wow. Um, he must have had the gift of the gab too, because although the pirates wanted to go to West Africa, he persuaded them to sail north up the American coast to Nova Scotia um, of Canada. And on the way, they met a small New York trading vessel and Graham held it, asking if there were any young men on board who were willing to go with him to seek their fortunes. That's, that's a phrase that does recur in some of the testimonies, seeking your fortune. Yeah. Uh, three of the crew responded, uh, one of whom was a teenager called John Strangwidge, uh, who came from what's now New Jersey State, a place called Piscataway. Hmm. He was about 14, and he said later on that he, the reason he and others joined the resolution was because they feared their ship was running out of food and drink. Uh, so okay. it was you know, fear of starvation. Of survival. And, yeah, and he yeah. wasn't the only one to say that in the testimony. Wow, 14. Uh, once they got to Nova Scotia, the pirates took their first recorded haul, um, uh, cargoes of beaver pelts and moose skins, um, which were valuable, but they didn't shine or clink. And at this point, another row breaks out. There's <laughs> another thing that recurs through the voyage. Um, pirate ships operated to, according to rules and observed a, a rough form of democracy that was otherwise largely alien to the 17th century world. Um, many pirates probably served in merchant ships or naval vessels and suffered um, harsh discipline and, and often bad treatment and had no wish to experience that again. Uh, so the will of the crew mattered very, very much on, on a pirate ship. And um, Graham himself must have exploited this in order to become captain. And he now became on the receiving end uh, in, in, in this row, and it became his turn to leave. Uh, the ship's quartermaster took over, a man called Joseph Anderson, and he became the, the third captain of the, the resolution. Uh, okay. They finally fixed on West Africa as destination because the African coast was a source of gold, peppers, exotic woods, and enslaved people. So there was a lot of value in, in, in their terms. Yeah. Um, they got to West Africa, and um, a lot of things happened. Uh, in the course of a year or so, the Resolution pirates cruised up and down the coast. They raided Portuguese settlements and engaged in trade. Um, they joined with the crew of a, a, a bigger ship, which they renamed Resolution, uh, and then acted as mercenaries for the uh, British Royal African Company, which was the, uh, the official government-ordained slave trading enterprise. Um, mm. And they captured a 250-ton French-owned frigate, which was uh, endangering, uh, as they thought, British trade. Uh, and one of the things that really does stain the, the idea of the pirates as a, a, a jolly rogue um, Yeah is, um, aside from the, the violence that they committed, um, was the fact that they not infrequently engaged in slave trading. And yes. the, pirate, the story of piracy is, is not gone. Uh, it's um, Piracy survived into the 19th century, and in recent decades it's seen a revival in on the African coast, uh, in South America and Asia. Um, and like its historical counterpart, it's unglamorous, and it's about robbery and the threat of violence and all, all the things that go go with it. But um, mm. when it comes yeah. to most British piracy, the, the, the book of pirate reality, if you can call it that, was, was largely closed in the 1720s, only to be reopened uh, very so soon after by writers, dramatists, and much later on by filmmakers. 
who would often turn the pirate into a pantomime villain who was uh, running his hands through chests overflowing with gold, jewels and silver. Uh, yeah. and, and somewhere in the pi- background there might well be a parrot uh, squawking out, pieces of eight, pieces of eight. So that's that's what we've ended up with, yeah. uh, something of a dichotomy yeah. between uh, what really happened and uh, how, how they're seen nowadays. And I think this launching yes, the, the pirate myth is probably impossible. <laughs> yes, well, maybe so, but... It's been, I mean, thank you so much, Ian, for telling us this extraordinary story. It's been so, so interesting. And just very finally, I'd just like to ask, so for our listeners who are interested in reading your books and in finding out more about your books and about you, where is the best place to to find you? Uh, Well, I've got a a website, which is um, www w.infreel.co.uk um, but the, the books themselves are published by Pen and Sword um, the, the, as I say the headline title is A Britain on the Ocean Road uh, which was, takes goes from 1297 to 1825 and then uh, it's more recent successor um, uh, Breaking Seas Broken Ships which carries the story from the 1850s to the 21st century and, and the, covers a lot more than just pirates and there's for people who are maybe not interested in pirates, there are things about uh, trade and uh, uh, wreck and rescue and um, oh, fantastic. Uh, warfare, of course. So uh, it, it covers quite a range. Brilliant. It took about, um, from the time I started, it's getting on for five years. <laughs> oh, wow, wow, okay. Quite a while, though, I can tell you, to find the Resolution Pirates. Um, oh. through these great volumes um, uh, at the National Archives in Kew and trying to find something that, that involves both the shipwreck because the idea of the shipwreck it, it, it sort of concentrates attention if you like um, but it's what's also really important is what the shipwreck and the ship itself tells you and, and the people who are on it tell you about what was happening as regards Britain as a maritime nation at the time Brilliant. Well, no, that's absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much. Um, Really interesting. Thanks so much for listening to today's pirate-themed episode. Don't forget to hit subscribe, leave us a rating and a review if you enjoyed it. We'll also be posting pictures of some of the things we talked about on today's episode on our social media platforms at History Gems Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Join us soon for another episode of History Gems.